the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, God brings many of the kingdoms around Israel under David's authority. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. The title of the message is Loyal Love. Second Samuel chapter 8. One chapter is going to be about what God does for David, and then the next chapter is going to be about what David does for someone else. And so it's really cool because the, the theme of Second Samuel is a heart after God. And so, you know, we see God's heart in one chapter, and then we're going to see David having a heart after God in the next. So this all stems from the fact that in Second Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that he would cause Israel to dwell in a place of their own and that their enemies would no longer oppress them. And so that means, obviously, David's got to do something about the the Philistines. They're no longer occupying Israeli territory, but Philistia is still right there next to them in land that God gave to them. And then there's a few other places that are creating problems for Israel as well. And so as we look in chapter 8 and see God's loyal love to David and giving him victory over his enemies... We're going to then see David's heart after God to show that same loyal love to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in chapter 9. And so may we leave, you know, knowing God's loyal love for us in order that we might share his heart by giving that same devotion to others. So chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them in a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured, he put to death and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servant and brought gifts. We start here in verse 1 with the Philistines. After this, so after the events of chapter 7, where the Lord promises David that he's going to even expand his kingdom further and create a place for his people where they can dwell in peace, Well, it says right after that, David smote the Philistines. The word there, smote, means to strike down to ruin. This is not just a victory in one battle. This is a complete victory. And so it says that he subdued them as a result. This is interesting because from the end of the book of Judges all the way to 2 Samuel, the Old Testament narrative has revolved around the Israeli-Philistine conflict, right? I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years in Israel. But now David smashes them so solidly, we get few details. It just says, Israel wins. 
And, and then now they're subject, they're subdued. They become a vassal state uh, of Israel where they're David's servants. And it mentions little details of how this happened. David took Metheg Amah. Uh, Metheg Amah uh, is the phrase, the bridle of the mother. Chronicles 18 verse 1 identifies this city as the city of Gath, uh, the mother city in that sense, the mothership. It was the most important of the Philistine royal cities. David, of course, remember he had taken refuge there at one point in time when he was on the run from Saul, and he served the king of Gath. But now, the mother city of the Philistines, and it says, in 1 Chronicles 18.1, it says, and all the towns, all of its daughter towns, all the towns of the Philistines now serve David. Now, of course, we ask the question, well, wait a second, I thought they're supposed to wipe out everybody in the land, right? Why does David make them his subjects and not wipe them out? Well, the Philistines aren't Canaanites. They migrated to the promised land region from southern Europe. And God, he wanted Israel to be at peace with their neighbors. And he actually gives instructions in Deuteronomy. If you go to a land or if you have enemies that are around you and you defeat them, then you treat them differently than you would the rest of the Canaanites. And so God wanted them to be at peace with their neighbors. Of course, the problem is that their neighbors took the land God promised to them. And so David had to fight them. And so they become his subjects. In verse 2, we see a little bit of a different situation. David smote Moab. Now, that's very confusing to me because where did David send his parents when he was on the run from Saul? He took him to the king of Moab's palace, right? And that's where they lived. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. So it seems kind of odd that this relationship would all of a sudden be strained. What happened to their relationship that caused a war? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. One rabbinical teaching says that the king of Moab murdered David's parents to curry favor with Saul. Um, They bring up the fact, for example, that David's parents are never mentioned after David leaves them in Moab, and they aren't. So that is a possibility, and if that's true, then it makes David's actions after he wins the war a bit more understandable. It says that he measured them with a line. He put uh, basically had them all lay down on the ground, and he two-thirds, he put this big, huge you know, yarn across or whatever, and two-thirds were executed, and one-third were allowed to live. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. They became, again, a vassal kingdom. He conquers Moab. So he's conquered Philistia. He's conquered Moab. I understand if you read this and you think, man, that, that sounds horrible what David did. David's a, he's a, he's a warrior, and that's, that's, and that's how things were done back then. I'm not saying God was okay with that. It just explains that's what happened. Verse 3, we see another place that David's going to conquer. It says, David smote also Hadad Ezer, the son of Rechab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. By the way, there's more to the story before we get into Zobah. There's more to the story about Moab. Moab, if you remember, they are the descendants of Lot, right? And so the, God gave them land just south or just east of the Dead Sea, at, just south of the land he promised to Israel, Right? And so the Moabites, when Israel came around to uh, come to the promised land, God told them and said, don't fight them. They're your far distant relatives, okay? And I've given that land to the Moabites. Don't fight them. And so they went to the Moabites and said, hey, can, can we buy some food off you and stuff? And the Moabites completely rebuffed them. Fine. Well, then Israel goes around them. And when they get around them to the north, they don't threaten Moab at all. The king of Moab, Balak, he gets paranoid about the Israelis being on his northern border. 
And so he hires Balaam, the seer, this soothsayer, this witch doctor, to come curse him. And he makes an alliance with the Midianites. You know how that story goes. Well, that wasn't it. Israel defeats them in a battle because of all the mess that Moab caused with them, but doesn't take their land, and they go on to the promised land. Well, we look in Judges, and the very first, when Othniel is the judge of Israel, Caleb's son-in-law, after he is done judging Israel, Israel falls away from the Lord, and the Moabites, they take advantage of it. They invade. And so God raises up Ehud, and Israel conquers Moab. Do they take their land? No. They just conquer them to kick them out of their land, and then they go away. And they say, you stay in your land, we'll stay in our land. And then we see another time in the future that here are the Moabites coming again. These were constant enemies to the nation of Israel. And so when we read about David executing two-thirds of them, these are people that just keep coming back against Israel. What are you going to do at that point? David says, I want to make it so they can't come back for a long time. Again, I'm not saying God told him to do that, but at some point, if someone keeps coming after you, you got to do something about it. Now, verse 3, David smote Hadad Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border, his lands at the river Euphrates. Hadad Ezer is a title. It's not this guy's name. It means the storm god is my helper. Uh, Hadad was the storm god of the the. Syrian, there's like an Aramean League of Nations at this point, and Syria wasn't a big nation at this point. Eventually, they conquer all these guys, and, and they become you know, a pretty big kingdom. But Zobah is to the north of what we would think of as Syria in the Bible, Damascus. And in 1 Samuel 14, 47, it records that the kingdom of Zobah was one of those that Saul went on a rampage uh, against after Samuel told him that God would take the kingdom from him. Remember when Saul came and he sacrificed before Samuel got there? And Samuel came to him and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, I, the people, they were leaving in droves. We're already outnumbered by the Philistines. I had to do something. And he's like, why didn't you just do what the Lord said? And so he says, all right, I'm out. And remember Saul grabs his, the hem of his tunic, tunic and it, it tears. And he says, God's, just as you t- torn my tunic, God's going to tear the kingdom from you. Well, Saul said, yeah, watch Watch what I have to say about that. And he goes on this rampage against everybody around him. Zobah's one of those kingdoms that he goes on a rampage against. So apparently either Israel or one of Israel's allies has land that was taken from them. And so the king says, I'm going to come get it back. And so he comes to take his land back. And it mentions it's at the river Euphrates, which is the eastern part of middle Syria. That's a long way from Israel. So again, I'm kind of curious how David got involved. Either Saul took land there, but that seems odd. It's possible that Maacah, which was uh, a land north and east of Israel, uh, to which David, we already know, he married one of their daughters. In fact, um, Absalom, the son that we're going to meet, the the wonderful son that we're going to meet, that tries to take the kingdom from David. His mom is the daughter of the king of Maacah. He actually goes and stays there after he murders his brother. This is a beautiful family, by the way. You know, murders his brother who raped his sister. Yeah, it's just a mess. And, and so he goes and stays up there for a couple of years because he figures if I'm home, dad's going to kill me. And so it's possible that that was land that he took from this guy, Hadad Azer. And so now he's attacking Maacah to get the land back and David's coming to an ally's defense. I don't know for sure. Whatever the reason, Israel defeated them. Look at verse four. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen 
And David huffed all the chariot horses, but reserved of them a hundred chariots. The word, it basically took some captives, and it says that he captured 700 horsemen and a thousand chariots, but pretty much all the chariots, he disables them. The word horses is not in the, people, they read this chapter like, why did David kill all the horses? What did horses do, you know? And I know first he's killing all the Moabites, now he's killing horses. The horses is not in the original text. The word huffed, it, it means to cut the tendon on the back leg of, of an animal, but but it also is used to disable like a like a vehicle. And so that's what probably happened here. David doesn't take all the spoils. He, he destroys the chariots, saving just a hundred of them to take home. The horses were probably set free or taken back to Israel for non-military purposes. And the reason David doesn't take the horses and the chariots for military purposes is clear because Deuteronomy 17 gives not a whole lot of instructions for kings when Israel has a king. Look over at Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 with me. There, I think there are four or five things that God tells a king he's not supposed to do, and then he gives him two or three things that he's supposed to do. But one of the things he's not supposed to do is in verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. Why were they not supposed to multiply horses to themselves as kings? Israel was never to have a large cavalry. Rather, they were to trust the Lord for victory in battle. That's interesting because the chariot is kind of the equivalent of like a tank today. You know, and I realize that we've got really advanced tanks these days, but that's the equivalent, you know, of some type of an armored vehicle like this that can move at great speed and take on a bunch of infantry. And so why would you not want to have a military advantage? You know, it's funny, you read some commentaries and all like, well, you know, the hilly places in Israel, it's not conducive to chariots. Lies. If you've never been there, you see all the valleys too, and all the enemies always had chariots. God specifically told them, don't want you to have a large cavalry. Why? I don't want you to trust in your own military superiority. I want you to trust in me for the victory. So God specifically puts Israel at a military disadvantage so they'll always trust in him. Isn't that fascinating? David will, later on, he will write Psalm 20. And Psalm 20, verse 7, is probably one of the most famous verses. Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, when you, you read through Psalm 20, uh, it starts off, the Lord hear you in the day of trouble, the name of the God of Jacob defend you. So what are they supposed to trust in? The name of the Lord our God, his character, his promises, that he's faithful to, to defend us. So Israel was always to be at this disadvantage. And, and this is a song that David wrote where he says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we'll remember the name of the Lord our God. David this reflects his obedience here when he doesn't take the chariots and he sets, either sets the horses free or puts them to non-military use. Now, when David stopped this advance from Hadad Ezer, this guy's allies in Damascus decide to join the fight. Uh, but that just results in another kingdom, kingdom becoming a vassal kingdom to David. Look at verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor help Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew with the Syrians 22,000 men. And so David put, then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. So, I mean, garrisons are military towns. 
So, I mean, Damascus is a massive city. It's probably the oldest city in the world at this point. And, and David, I mean, if you go to Israel and you, you go to the Golan Heights, you know, someone will go, hey, Damascus is that way. <laughs> you can't even see it. This is a far away from Israel. And David has military towns in this sprawling, massive city right around it. This is, this is mine now. And the Syrians became servants to David and they brought tribute. They brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. I love that. We're going to see that phrase twice in this chapter. Preserved, it means saved, rescued, delivered. It gives us the impression that they didn't go into this battle with the odds on their side. None of these victories are because of David or Israel's superior military strength. It was God's loyal love for his people, his faithfulness to his promise in 1 Samuel 7.10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore like they have before. Now, verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad-Ezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Betah and Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. So David, after he defeats Hadadezer when he's invading, the Syrians attack, he defeats them. He, then he makes this kind of a triumphant march from Zobah all the way down to Syria, back to Jerusalem, and he takes all these the spoils of war. These uh, golden shields, as you might imagine, gold is a soft metal, you don't make shields to use in battle out of gold unless you want to get pummeled. And so these are ornamental pieces from his servants, it says. These are high-ranking officials in the king's court. They are subservient to David now. So David defeated Hadadezer so soundly that he marched into their cities as a conqueror and basically took whatever he wanted. And apparently this guy Hadadezer wasn't liked by people around him because his northern neighbor sends David a congratulatory embassy with gifts. Look at verse Nine, when Toy, king of Hamath, Hamath is north of Zobah, which is north of Syria. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad Ezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him, to, to bless him, and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad Ezer and smitten him, for Hadad Ezer had wars with Toy. And Joram brought him vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and vessels of brass. So this kingdom north of Zobah brings a gift to David saying, thanks for dealing with this guy. He's been a headache to me for years. It's very interesting. This guy, Joram, that's, a, that's an Israeli name. It means the Lord is exalted. First Chronicles chapter 18, verse 10 lists his name as Hadoram, which means the storm god is exalted which means that David apparently had some type of influence on this guy that he changed his name to the Lord is exalted. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of influence I want to have upon people. That they're living this way and then they decide, nope, your God's better. <laughs> and they, and they, they totally take a different, uh, a different course in their life. Well, Hamath, Hamath didn't become a vassal nation of David. These are just, this is just a voluntary gift of friendship. And so David takes that gift and we're going to see here that he takes that and all the other plunder, and he gives it to the Lord, verse 11, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord. Uh, dedicate means to set apart to special use. Uh, likely, he set it aside for the temple, uh, knowing that even though God told him he couldn't build it, God told him his son would build it. And so he sets aside these funds, this, these materials for the building of the temple. 
which also David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he subdued. And then it lists them here of Syria. We already covered that. Of Moab, we covered that. Oh, the children of Ammon. This is a battle we haven't heard about yet. We're going to find out about it in chapter 10. And of the Philistines and of Amalek. Again, some other battle. And of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rechab, king of Zobah. This was David's habit, basically, is what it's telling us, with all the tribute and all the spoils of war that came. He didn't put it to himself. He, he gave it to the Lord. It was all going to be for the Lord's service. Now, for all these victories that David's had, there is one specific battle that really made David famous. Look at verse 13. And David, King James says, get him a name. <laughs> I like that, get him a name. Uh, it means David made himself famous or he was made famous when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians. So when David got done dealing with the Syrian invasion up there, whatever they were invading, it says he made himself famous with something else he did. And it happened in the Valley of Salt. If you just read this, it looks like it says David fought the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, but that's, there should be a comma or something there, a semicolon something, because in the Valley of Salt is where this famous battle occurs that we'll learn about in a second where it was. It says he defeated 18,000 men there. And verse 14 tells us where it was. He put garrisons in Edom. Now, the Valley of Salt, of course, is a reference to the Dead Sea, and Edom is just southeast of the Dead Sea. So this is not talking about his battle with the Syrians. This is his next battle after returning from the north, the place where he becomes famous. Now, it doesn't give us any details about the battle. It just says David won. Why does this make him famous? Well, turn to Psalm 60, because David writes this psalm after this battle. It's a really cool psalm. Look at what verse 1 says. O God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. O turn yourself to us again. Whoa. Now, we have no indication about why this happens in Israel, what's going on. But while David's on this campaign up north, all of a sudden, he comes back and he finds the nation is a mess. And somehow, God has removed his favor from the nation to the point where he says, Lord, you've cast us off and return to us. Lord, you're gone. We need you to return to us. You have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Lord, we're in hot water right now. Heal the breaches there. We got holes everywhere, so much so that the earth shakes. Verse 3. You have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. In other words, the concept here is, Lord, we're, we're kind of like the, the person who's, who's drunk and then somebody kind of just slaps them. And, and it, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Where am I? What's going on? That's the idea here that he's conveying here. When David gets back, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, Lord, you've, you've said some hard things. So apparently some prophets came or somebody came and said, David, the kingdom's been doing this while you've been gone, and this is why you're in trouble right now. And David's going, this is a mess. Verse 4, you have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Lord, you gave us something to cling to. You gave us hope. Apparently a prophet had said, listen, if you guys repent and you do this, then God will come back and he'll restore you. And so, verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. 
I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim. And it lists all these other places. Edom will I cast out with my, out of my shoe, verse 8. So all these places here where he says, God comes to him and says, listen, David, I gave you victory after victory after victory after victory. And if you'll just turn back to me, if you guys will turn back to me, I'll take care of Edom too. And so, again, we don't know what happened, but somehow the Edomites invaded Israel and they were winning. And Israel was in a bad, bad spot. So much so that verse 9, David says, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? David says, Lord, I don't, I don't know how to do the, win this fight. I, I don't know how to turn this around. And so he calls out. In verse 5, he had said, save with your right hand and hear me. Lord, this is my prayer. Lord, who's going to lead us to victory here? Not us. Verse 10, will not you, O God, which has cast us off, which you had in the past cast us off, and you, O God, which did not go out with our armies? Verse 11, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. And then in verse 12, he says, through God we shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. And so David sought the Lord. And again, we don't get the details of the battle, but God gave them an overwhelming victory. And this is when all the other nations around Israel started to realize David was special because the Lord was with him. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.